all the feels on this one. Because that's what the science says. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. Let's talk about what this looks like in real life. Facts do not have opinions. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Science is true whether or not you believe in it. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Welcome to The Whole View. It's a little bit of an upside-down day today because we're joined by our podcast producer and my husband, who is awkwardly making eye contact with me right now. (laughs) Matthew McCary, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. (laughs) Can I tell you how jealous my husband is right now? He was, he's, so he's become recently uh, one of our uh, additional male listeners, um, which is kind of weird for me because I, this used to be my safe space to complain about my husband. And now I have to like, instead talk nicely about him on the podcast. It's not true. You never complained about him. (laughs) I know you're just putting that little Easter egg there to bother him. It is. He's going to want to go and listen to the entire back catalog. It's going to be amazing. But uh, but yeah, I was telling him about about this week's show and he was like, well, don't don't you have listener questions about what it's like to be married to a theoretical astrophysicist? And I said, surprisingly, no. (laughs) (laughs) Surprisingly, that is not a thing that people are asking. Listen, if he's put it out there. If he's itching, we we can where there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> I mean, he could always develop a crippling psychological disorder, and then, you know, oh, we could have a show about that. Great, that yeah. is a hundred percent an option, um, and also a great intro into a great segue into this week's topic. <laughs> so, um, I have recently been sharing more about. ADD and ADHD since we did our show probably last year when we talked about Wesley becoming medicated. Um, Mm -hmm. We've done at least four shows on this topic before talking about um, natural approaches that we used as well as medication in 416 and 462. But years and years ago, we first talked about it because my oldest son um, episodes 145 and 185, we went into the science and life updates from Cole. But we've never talked about it from the perspective of where the kids are getting this genetic makeup, <laughs> <laughs> which is my husband, who has um, had ADD since I met him back in the weed, you know, Golden years. Almost 20 years ago now. Oh, ye olden days of the 1900s. <laughs> it wasn't the 1900s, actually. We're that old. <laughs> uh, yeah. But I've had it since the 1900s. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It was, what did we mean? 2002. 2002. It was almost the 1900s. So we've been together a really long time. And um, for, I mean, considering that we're 40, like yeah. we've been together half of our life. And it is not without its challenges. And I think one of the things that um, when I started sharing a little bit more on social media about this, a lot of people wanted to talk about this because we're not alone in being in a partnership with a non-neurotypical person. And I think 
one of the things that I hope can come from the show, and I know, Sarah, you're going to summarize the science of ADD, ADHD in particular, before we kind of dive into some of these questions that we got from listeners and readers. But one of the things that I hope is that there can be perspective gained beyond just ADD and ADHD, because non-neurotypical humans come in a variety of spices of life. And the principles that we're going to talk about are going to apply to nearly all of them. Um, You know, I've learned this from having four different foster kiddos in my home who all have their unique challenges separate from our genetic makeup. And these things that we're talking about in partnership, as well as parenthood, like we've talked about before, really apply to any sort of relationship, whether that's, you know, parental or caretaker or friend or, you know. Yeah. And I just want to point out that um, a lot of you may think I don't live with somebody who is uh, neurodiverse or anything like that. But when we say neurodiverse, we just mean anybody whose brain functions differently. So that doesn't just include ADD, autism, or uh, any kind of thing that's categorized normally as a disorder, but even somebody who um, is anxious, someone who um, doesn't like social situations, uh, someone who's introverted, like anything like that, learning to accommodate a neuro difference is important for all the relationships in our lives because lots of people have something going on and you're not going to know about it. Yeah, I think one of the things that I I really like that you were both emphasizing off the bat is the aspect of this that is uh, something that you learn in a long-term relationship about your partner that means that there needs to be flexibility and accommodation and understanding where that where one person needs to give in order to accommodate the other person. I think there is this, a sort of misconception about long-term relationships that a compromise is always in the middle. And I know this is something that we're going to get into, but when we're talking about accommodating a, um, something that comes out of a neurodiverse person that sometimes that compromise is not in the middle, right? Sometimes that compromise can feel more like it's one, from on one side versus the other, but that is the thing that makes a relationship work. That is why you guys can sit here after two decades together and be able to talk from that perspective. So I, I, I just kind of want to emphasize what you already said from the beginning of, um, part of this is really just understanding your partner and understanding what they need to make that relationship really solid. And to be perfectly honest, sometimes you don't like it. And sometimes it sucks. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's where kind of remembering the the positive things or focusing on the skills people do have and different kinds of things that we're going to talk about are going to come into play. Because one of the things we're going to talk about openly, and Matt's looking at me a little bit sad right now, is the difficulties that we've had. And I'm not without my own challenges, right? Like neither one of us is perfect. Mine just look different than Matt's challenges. And 
Frankly, his is a medical condition that's pretty predictable. Mine sometimes might be completely irrational and, um, you know, different kinds of things. Um, just because I'm an Italian redheaded stepchild and, you know, who knows what's going to come out of me. But um, maybe before we dive into how we make this work that I think can apply to, you know, more people and factors to consider in um, practicing kindness also to, you know, friends and children and different kinds of things, right? Like we're going to talk about partnership, but it really will apply to more than that. Um, Sarah, maybe you can kind of like give us a rundown of the medical condition that we're talking about in terms of some of the, some of the things that might be frustrating or might be identified as weaknesses come from a place of medical condition. And I think one of the things that we need to do before we move forward is understanding those things because when you see it play out in real life it might not look the way that you think about it looking like a child sitting in a classroom or something like that and needing to understand where it comes from and how to work with that person on working through that is important and actually before we begin i just want to say one thing stacy says medical condition i don't really like to medicalize it like that uh because that implies that that, that it's something that needs to be or can be fixed. Um, we're talking about the way that a brain works, really, when it comes down to it. And that's not a medical condition so much as a set of parameters that, that the brain works in, works in. And while you can adjust those with medication, um, the underlying condition is not a medical problem. It's just how it is. <laughs> I... This is something that's actually taken me a long time to accept about myself. Um, because for so long, I've been fighting against the ADHD and trying to correct it and thinking about it as correcting it. Instead of thinking it like, this is how my brain works and I need to find a way to work with my brain. There's no way that I'm going to escape it. So instead of saying it's a medical condition, I like to say that it's it's how my brain works, and I can use medication to adjust that to better fit my lifestyle, or I can choose not to, but I have to accept that as a baseline, this is how I am, and to adjust things according to that. Okay. Yeah, I think that point of um, not pathologizing, um, whether it's ADD, ADHD, or autism spectrum disorder, or even, you know, a, a super strong introversion, I think is a is really well taken. And I, I think I want to acknowledge from the get go, as I'm about to get into the, the science on what are categorized as symptoms that even just using the word symptom is pathologizing. And I'm, I'm going to just say up front, I don't think my language around this is going to be as progressive as I would like it to be. Um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna try to talk about this both through the lens of how ADHD might be identified by a doctor, but also try to acknowledge that this is, again, it's just a non-neurotypical brain, and these are the, the hallmarks of that. 
Today's podcast is brought to you by Quip, which is a new to me brand, honestly. But let me tell you, now that I've tried it, I am loving, legit loving their electric toothbrush. With stylish and affordable electric toothbrushes starting at just $25, you won't be paying through the teeth for better oral health. Oh my gosh. You're really going <laughs> to hit us with that pun right off the top. <laughs> I couldn't help myself. But I am also like genuinely loving my toothbrush. It's sleek and small like a manual toothbrush, but it has all the benefits and features of the top electric brushes at an affordable price. Same. Matt's used an electric toothbrush for years and got me my own head for it, but it's bulky and I don't like the way that it feels. So I've been using a manual one until now. Uh, the Quip one uses what they call sensitive sonic vibrations to avoid it being too abrasive. And it feels like the Goldilocks of toothbrushes to me. Not too small, not too big, not too much vibration. Still signals how long you've been brushing. Just right. <laughs> Stacey, did you know there was a really awesome 2012 systematic review that found that brushing your teeth for two minutes removes about twice as much plaque as brushing your teeth for one minute? I didn't know that, but it doesn't surprise me. And I do want to give assurances that while you have this toothbrush in your mouth for two minutes, and if you're using Quip's awesome, eco-friendly, safe floss that they have straight on their website, that their refillable floss string is completely free of BPA, PTFE, and PFAS, which we talked about why we avoid in an episode 464, PFAS Forever Chemicals. It's safe, but it's also fun. Did you see the new smart motor that lets you track and improve your brushing with the free Quip app? Uh, making a game out of oral health and earning amazing rewards like free refills, products, target gift cards, more. I mean, yes, please. I know my oral health habits have improved because of Quip's gamification. <laughs> so adorable. Uh, but admittedly, I'm quirky too. I know it's an odd small thing, but I really love that the bristles are black because sometimes I use charcoal toothpaste and I don't like a dirty looking toothbrush. If you want to check out our new favorite toothbrush, go to getquip.com slash whole view right now and you'll get your first refill free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash whole view spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash whole view. Quip, the good habits company. We actually talked about the neurotransmitter differences, at least what's un understood currently back in episode 145, and that understanding in the medical literature has not expanded dramatically since then. So I thought what would be more interesting today is to talk about how ADD, ADHD are sort of broadly categorized and the difference in terms of what that looks like in a child or teenager who is identified as having ADHD versus an adult, because certainly, um, certainly there are, you know, kids and teenagers who no longer are identified as having ADHD when they reach adulthood, but the majority, about 65%, continue to, you know, have some some variation of these uh, identifying behaviors as they grow up. So ADHD is sort of broadly categorized into three categories, inattentive, hyperactive and impulsive, 
or combined, which is basically both. And the way this would be identified by a medical professional, again, I, I don't want to use the term symptoms, but I'm, I'm, we'll, we'll say characteristics. Um, but what a, uh, a person who is identifying ADHD would look for in inattentive would be six out of the following nine characteristics. So often failing to give close attention to details or making careless mistakes. This is most obvious in schoolwork, but could also happen beyond in work or other activities. Often having difficulty sustaining attention in tasks or play activities. Often not seeming to listen when spoken to directly. Often not following through on instructions, failing to finish schoolwork or chores or duties in the workplace, for example. Often having difficulty organizing tasks and activities. Often avoiding, disliking, or being reluctant to engage in tasks that require sustained mental effort. Often losing things necessary for tasks or activities. Often being easily distracted by extraneous stimuli. And often being forgetful in daily activities. So those having six out of those nine characteristics would identify predominantly inattentive ADHD. The hyperactive and impulsive form would be identified based on having six out of the following nine characteristics. Often fidgeting or tapping hands or feet, squirming in a seat, often leaving a seat in situation where remaining seat seated would be expected, often running about or climbing in situations where it's inappropriate, often being unable to play or engage in leisure activities quietly, uh, often just being kind of on the go, acting as if, and this is the, this is the quote, driven by a motor, um, often talking excessively, often blurting out an answer before a question has been completed, sort of completing other people's sentences, often having difficulty waiting for their turn, um, and often interrupting or intruding on others. And then combination ADHD is uh, six out of the nine characteristics on both of those lists. So in it my case, um, I am a combined type, <laughs> um, but I'm definitely much more of the inattentive uh, side than the hyperactivity. Um, in the case of my brother, Andrew, uh, my brother, Andrew was also a combined type, but he was much more hyperactivity and impulsiveness. And I think Wesley is much is the uh, is the same. Yeah, of our two kids, they're the same. Like one of them is more inattentive, and one of them is more um, hyperactive and impulsive. So we see it through the genetics um, on basically almost all those fronts. And we'll talk about what that looks like um, in an adult in real life. But were you about to say something else, Sarah? Yeah. What's interesting is that there's gender differences, um, and part of that is very likely diagnosis, but um, the current statistics point to females as being more likely to be inattentive type, whereas hyperactive and impulsive or combined tend to have a, a much more skewed male to female ratio. And one of the sort of current thoughts is that females are not being identified as easily because a because that presents more quietly, right? Compared to 
um, a boy getting up from their seat in the middle of instruction in schoolwork, it, it's a uh, easier to identify a characteristic compared to uh, a girl would just be, you know, it would be brushed off as daydreaming, for example. Meanwhile, when you actually pay attention, you can see all of those characteristics. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's very easy to, to determine from observing Wesley for two minutes that he's got ADD. Um, but, I mean, I do know some some women with ADD, and a lot of them aren't even diagnosed until they're adults. Yeah. And we're using ADD and ADHD interchangeably. What's interesting is, and I think we covered this on four. 62. I'm not exactly I, one of the pre- previous shows, but the diagnosis used to be ADD was attention deficit disorder, and then ADHD was attention deficit hyperactive disorder. But the as Sarah's kind of gone through the way that they characterize and identify now, it's a combined type. And so, yeah. you know, it's often referred to either and I think the the biggest difference is just understanding that the H is referring to hyperactivity. But in general, they're diagnosing it as one diagnosis now versus they used to separate into two separate diagnoses. Back in the day, they diagnosed me with ADD and they and they diagnosed Andrew with ADHD. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, we're talking about the same, the same disorder, the same processes. Yeah. What's interesting, too, is that the same person can present more as like predominantly inattentive or combined or hyperactive different times in their life. So the prevalence shifts by, by age. So in, you know, very young kids who are diagnosed, the, the most prevalent would be combined by the time you hit sort of six to 18 years old, the, the highest prevalence by a pretty big margin is predominantly inattentive type. And then in adults, it's much more like across the board. So inattentive is the most predominant, but but only by a slim margin compared to combined or predominantly hyperactive and impulsive. So I think that's another thing for parents, people in relationships to recognize is that just because somebody has the characteristics of one type now doesn't mean that's not going to shift with life experience with a hormone environment with, you know, all of the different things that are impacting, right. Our, our brains are super sensitive to everything in our life. Right. So, um, so this is something that can evolve over time. So I think one of the things that's interesting as it evolves is when I think about how this presents like in school and to my children, you know, Wesley is one of those people that's driven by a motor. He's constantly pacing and fidgeting, like just, I think he might fidget in his sleep. (laughs) He's just like constantly um, moving at all times. And what's great is that we found ways for him to do that. And, um, you know, are, are managing the impulsive issues that we were having before, but that, you know, his ability to be able to move his body is helping him process what's happening around him. So if we tried to stop his body from moving, we would have, a whole host of like snowball of badness from how that would feel for him. And what I see in adult symptoms is what that feels like to be restricted, Mm -hmm. to hold yourself back, to not be able to 
live the way that your brain needs to, as Matt described, right? And so some of the symptoms that you see in adults and some of the related conditions are actually associated with that reservation, with that lack of self-confidence, knowing that it's difficult for you, the the frustration and knowing that you keep forgetting things over and over again. And that builds up to all of these other things. So maybe you can run through those, Sarah, and then we can talk about what that looks like in our real life a little bit. Yeah, that's one of the things that I found the most interesting digging into this research sort of prepping for this podcast is that as adults, we develop this like huge collection of coping strategies, right? Adjustments. And what that effectively means is that these characteristics are more subtle in adults. um, And it actually has some experts basically thinking that the list of characteristics needs to be modified for identifying ADHD in adults. And so the, the, sort of current suggested characteristics include carelessness and lack of attention to detail, continually starting new tasks before finishing old ones, poor organizational skills, inability to focus or inability to prioritize, continually losing or misplacing things, forgetfulness, restlessness and edginess, difficulty keeping quiet and speaking out of turn, blurting out responses and often interrupting others, Mood swings, irritability, and a quick temper, inability to deal with stress, extreme impatience, and then also risk-taking activities, um, which is interesting because we just talked about that on the podcast last week. And then there's also some other adjustments, for example, uh, lying, which might come from simply making a statement without thinking about it first. Um, and then there's also related conditions. So other challenges that often go hand in hand with ADHD in children, these, the most likely related conditions would be anxiety disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, conduct disorder, depression, sleep problems, autism spectrum disorder, epilepsy, Tourette's and learning difficulties such as dyslexia. In adults, what's much more likely is depression, um, but also personality disorders, bipolar disease, and obsessive compulsive disorder. So that compounds the challenges of structuring life in a neurotypical sort of designed society for somebody who is neurodivergent and then also has something like anxiety disorder on top of all of the other things that are making navigating society that is not adjusted for neurodivergence more challenging. I know that was a long list of badness. So I just want to like also jump off by saying there's a lot of coolness in a lot of neurodiversity. And it is one of the things that I was attracted to about Matt. He was so weird, and I couldn't figure him out. And I'm (laughs) such a person who's like, we both 
were into the mystery of each other, right? Like we were very different, even though we were going to the same school and our parents lived in the same town and like all these things, we had very different upbringing and it kept me interested. He wasn't boring, right? It was, it was something unique. And, um, he and his brothers and our sons all have this exuberance when they love something, when they love it, they love it wholeheartedly. Like they just have such enthusiasm and excitement. And it makes me excited, even if I don't like history or Marvel hero heroes, or, you know, whatever it is they're passionate about. Because one of the things that um, also aligns is having a passion for, you know, certain things and really clinging to them, because I think it's probably soothing to like, love and follow and be almost obsessive about something, mm-hmm. not from an uh, obsessive compulsive disorder sort of way, but in a, a this fandom a, way. Yes, a fandom. Yeah. And like, you know, Wesley loves to collect and you love Matt also loves to collect pins. And, you know, they each have like this thing that that soothes, I think, a part of their yeah. brain. Yeah. Yeah, so I just I I wanted to say it's not it's not all badness and it is one of the things that I loved and I I know one of the things that Matt and I talked about when the kids were first diagnosed was this shame that he felt that they had you know this bad thing that he had given them and you know we talked a lot about but that's part of you and I okay. love you and we made children together and I I knew that they could have this just as much as you knew that they could have these things about me. And just as you accepted that they were all going to be boys. <sighs> <laughs> it took until the third pregnancy for me to fully accept that, but yes. <laughs> um, so maybe you could talk a little bit about those feelings and what that was like for you going from childhood where you were kind of early on taking medication, trying desperately to get off of medication and doing all these other not great lifestyle things to try to make that happen as an adult. Mm -hmm. And then really, I think what would be cool is to also share, you know, I've been doing a lot of personal growth development in quarantine the last 18 months, both from, you know, social justice and foster training and all these kinds of things. And it, it really was a rocky period for us as I, was kind of growing and going down a path and you were working and you didn't have time for that because <laughs> you were delivering the mail. But that, you know, in the past, I don't know, six months, you've really been working on that journey as well. And I think, yeah. you know, you feel like you've you've turned a corner in your own growth and acceptance, which I think is really cool. Yeah. So I was diagnosed with uh, ADD in 1988. <laughs> so way back in the 1900s. <laughs> <laughs> Ye olden days. Yeah, in the third grade, um, and in the eighties, it was it was very new, and it this is when you had a lot of like, shall we say, uh, panic uh, pieces in the media about oh, all these kids are being diagnosed with ADD. Um, uh, it was very clear that myself and also Andrew were ADD from very early on. But they didn't have a word for it until the word ADD filtered into enough, you know, um, medical professionals. And, you know, I was in third grade and I remember, like, just not being able to behave. Self-control was always, like, how they phrased it. Like, you know, you, you get 
A's in all these subjects, but F in self-control. Mm-hmm. Like, because I couldn't sit still, I, I, you know, couldn't pay attention. But at the same time, this was also when my strengths came out, which is that very good at learning, right? I learn things, I don't forget it. Like, I'm very passionate about knowing more stuff. Uh, I really like to solve problems and everything like this. So while I was excelling in these academic things, it was in all the social stuff that it was becoming very difficult for me. Um, And the first thing they did was they put me on Ritalin. And it was so surprising to everybody that once I took this, then all of a sudden I was a different kid. You know, I was sitting still, was paying attention, was focusing. It didn't touch any of the executive problems, that I, the executive function problems I had. But, you know, it was very much all of a sudden I could behave. That's how everybody saw it. We're gonna uh, we're gonna call that impulse control, right? Right. It's okay. it's the impulse control. It's the hyperactivity. Yeah. That's what gets under control. What got under control? Um, but that set up in my mind like a very much a dichotomy between good behavior, bad behavior, right? Um, that the ADD symptoms that I had, that I always had, that were a part of me, that's the bad part that I needed to to. Um, uh, I needed to tamp down. I needed to needed to repress, and that set up like a lot of shame just really right off the bat at nine years old. Um, and I think this is a very common experience: is that is the feeling that those parts of the ADD are the bad parts, and you need to tamp it down. You need to get rid of it. That that's what you need to fight against. It set up a struggle, a lifelong struggle. A lot of people really do experience that. May I ask a question? Sure. Did the Ritalin also, like, hinder the amazing parts of ADD for you? The the amazing, like, the learning and the amazing memory? Was that also affected by the Ritalin? The biggest thing about ADHD medication that really is a shame. Like, I, I don't, I don't like this about it, uh, is that it, it hampers creativity because mm. your mind can't jump the way that it used to, that it's used to doing. Um, it's like, it's like all of a sudden your brain can only go in one track at a time. So it, it allowed me to sit still and pay attention in school, but I stopped uh, coming up with ideas while I was listening to people, which was, you know, something that I always thought was kind of cool. Um, and would present as interrupting someone, right? Because yeah. you were so excited and you have this idea, but it's, it in, in social circles would come across like, oh, this person is interrupting. They're not polite. They're disrespectful versus, you know, one of the things that we try to be compassionate about in the house is, if that happens, kind of saying to someone, you need to say excuse me before you do yeah. that, right? Like, it's not to say don't do that. Because I, I think this is one of the things that people are are asking is, in practicality, how do we work with this, right? And I, we're sitting here and Matt, before we started, I moved him further away from the desk than me because he's a 
uh, he'll bang his hands on the table as he's talking because he's moving, he's fidgeting, he's, you know, he's engaged and he's active. There's nothing wrong with that except you would hear it <laughs> the microphone <laughs> as banging. And then as he was talking, he was like rubbing his hands together and I could hear the noise. And so I'm like, oh, I bet the microphone is picking that up. So I grabbed his hand and I'm holding his hand, right? It doesn't, it doesn't mean that I'm telling him stop moving. It doesn't mean I'm telling him like, stop being who you are. It's me saying, I recognize that your body is feeling a little anxious or out of control at this moment. Like, here, take my hand. And then your brain is able to kind of focus on what your brain wants to focus on. But if I sat here and said, Matt, you need to stop moving, like that would be and hindering, and you probably wouldn't be able to articulate what you're trying to focus on and articulate if I did that. And I think that that's the kind of thing that we do as as much as we can. Um, But kind of moving on to what did that look like as as you changed medications, as you were a teenager, and all that. And, And all of this is to say, if you or a child of yours is on a certain medication that Matt has been on, or you're thinking that it's right for you, please understand we're not medical professionals and we're not giving medical advice. Matt is sharing his personal experience. And I highly recommend talking to a medical professional because there are three people in our house medicated for this and not a single one of them are on the same medications and prescriptions. Like everybody is individual and unique. And so what might, work or not work for Matt or for Wesley or whomever is going to be different than, you know, what might work for you or your partner or something like that. Yeah. Merlin was all there was back then. I mean, it was the only one. It was uh, a a stimulant and it um, led to uh, an ability to actually sit still. And that was beneficial for everybody. And you still were incredibly gifted yeah like let let me be very clear you were while you were less creative and maybe had less ideas you still had an incredible thirst for knowledge and you know passion for that and that stayed with you for a long time in your schooling you ended up going to college on a partial scholarship so you you know there's no lack of love for for knowledge (laughs) so the problem with the ADD that when I was growing up that developed some bad habits is being forgetful, um, being disorganized, being uh, all these things. They they lump lump them those under uh, executive function, right? Essentially being able to manage your life, right? Um, That led to a lot of silly problems. That's a good... Yeah, I mean, I mean, things that really aren't that that important, but you know, we're just kept coming up over and over again. Not turning in work on time because I forgot to do it. Not turning in forms was a big one for me, because you know I wouldn't turn in a form, and then they'd end up calling my mom. She's like, "Why didn't you turn in the form?" I was like, "I just forgot." And I go to school with the form and still forget, uh, and then they call her again. <laughs> Instead of being like, oh, this child has ADHD, let me ask him, is it in your backpack? You know, (laughs) like, which is, I think, what we see in teachers today who have a better understanding of it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, some people now like pin folders to their ADD kids, right? (laughs) Always checking this folder because something's going to be in there. Um, 
but one of the things it did was it created a habit in me where I would be confronted with something I didn't do and I would claim to have done it. You know, this is where it started is that as that I would start lying because the shame of not having done something, the bad feelings, I would want to avoid those whenever possible. Um, and it led to an entire lifetime of me just always feeling you ever have the feeling where you're like, uh, I'm forgetting something. It's really important. It's going to ruin my life when this comes out when I remember, but I just can't remember it. I have something that I haven't done yet. And it's terrible that I haven't done it yet. And I just don't know what it is. That's been a constant anxiety with me for my entire life because it's probably true. <laughs> it's probably true. Um, and on top of that, the ADD also made me very paralyzed to start anything that was difficult for me. Uh, and at first it was like, you know, doing organization tasks, very simple. Um, but it increased over time so that by the time I was in college, I was always a good writer. My problem was I would always do one draft and couldn't be bothered to edit. But I was a good good writer, um, but I became so paranoid about the process of sitting down and writing that I just couldn't start any writing project at all. Um, and that was led to very bad things with grades because if you don't turn it in, they don't get a grade. Um, but that paralyzing fear of starting the hard tasks, I mean, that was very terrible for me. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, another thing that ADHD people experience is uh, rejection sensitivity, um, in which you become so certain that people aren't going to like you the way you are, that you stop putting yourself out there, stop interacting with people because you're afraid that you're going to be rejected. And this also increased to a point where I didn't like to make phone calls. Still don't like making phone calls. Oh my gosh. I remember when we were on our way to your grandparents' house in Massachusetts. This is like one of the most vivid realizations for me of how overwhelmed you felt by this. So we must have been dating over a year if we were going to your grandparents' house, yeah. right? Like we'd been together a while and Matt had a Diet Coke problem. Uh, let's be really clear. Uh, one of the things that helped soothe is caffeine. And so way back in the day, there was a, a lot of Diet Coke that was consumed. And so we were on our way to Massachusetts and you needed Diet Coke, but there was no place. No, actually, this is even it's even worse. You wanted water. Oh, it wasn't even about you? It wasn't even about you. Like, you needed water. I just remember... And we were in the mountains, like, in, you know, going down these dirt, these country roads. Yeah, and I just remember there was, like, no place, and then we all of a sudden came, and there was, like, this restaurant. It was a bar. And yeah. I was like, oh, oh, you know, like, this this will solve our liquid problems, whatever <laughs> it was. And um, I don't... Was I, like, going to the bathroom or I was going to stay with the car or whatever it was? You were going to stay in the car. You asked me to go in and get If you water. could just run in and grab whatever it was. And you looked at me and you couldn't move. Yeah. Like, you... Like, your eyes got big and you are like, I can't... I can't go in there. And I was like, what? 
I'm like, just ribbon. You're nope. I can't. No, I can't go in. And I just was so confused because I'm talking to a grown man, you know, who's like, I can't go into the restaurant. And it occurred to me in that moment, like you wanted to go in, you wanted to do the thing, you wanted to be a helper, but you you were paralyzed. Yeah. And it is that sort of thing that builds, right? This idea of people don't like who I am as I am. I'm medicated. I'm, you know, put in special classes, whatever. The things that we do to try to help as parents, as peers, as partners can sometimes send a message to someone just the same way that you might say to someone, oh, you look great, you lost weight, sends a message that like you weren't enough when you were big. If you're trying to help someone, what you're saying is, as you are, needs to be fixed, needs to be changed. And so it builds to this shame and anxiety and this rejection that makes it so overwhelming that that like you couldn't walk in. And I was like, what do you think is going to happen in the restaurant? Like... You're like, I I don't I don't know. Like I don't even know. And I'm like, that's their job. They want to give you a drink in the restaurant, you know. But uh that we ended up not going into the restaurant. And, and you were like, you were mad at me. I for... was did not get it at the yeah. time. And but I think that's one of the things, right, is that um as as we matured together because we, you know, were together at a very young age. And as we matured together and you understood more about yourself and I understood more about you, what I knew was that you had the best of intentions. And what I knew was that I cared about you so deeply. And um, we wanted to find a way to make it work. And so, you know, maybe we can move on to some of the listener questions on and how we did that and how we, you know, still do that. But I do think that it's important to say that your your journey of medication ended up taking you to where you're now addressing all of these additional yeah. things that you have it's it's not enough to just be on a stimulant right like mm-hmm. we're or acknowledging oh now we have anxiety we have depression we have these different kinds of things that medication is there to help for this yeah. is what mod- modern medicine is for in addition to the work that you do to, you know, be your best self yeah. lifestyle wise. It's also what medicine exists for. Yeah. I just want to say, here's what really changed things for me. Um, for 20, actually more than that, for 40 years of my life, right? Like my entire lifetime. People had told me that, that the way that I was was wrong. Um, that's a message that I internalized is the way that my brain worked was wrong and I needed to change it. And it set up a lifetime of fighting myself. And that is the root of a lot of the problems that I have. It's why uh, I'm on antidepressants now. It's why I have anxiety the way I do is all down to not accepting myself. And I truly believe that radical acceptance, that your brain works a certain way and you need to work with it and not against it, is what really, like, honestly, like, skies opened up when I, when I heard that message. Um, I need to recommend everybody. There's a channel on YouTube that really brought this home to me that 
I didn't even watch until a few months ago. It's called How to ADHD. And this woman essentially says, said to me personally, said to me personally, <laughs> stop trying to put yourself in a neurotypical box. Stop trying to compare yourself to people with a neurotypical mind. You're different. And it is only with accepting that you're different and working with yourself that you're ever going to, one, have a fulfilling life, two, heal from the trauma of the past. And once I heard that, it really was incredibly relieving to just stop, stop trying to fit myself into a box I'm never going to fit in. Um, and it's not easy. I still have my struggles. I still wish that I could be organized. I still wish that I could uh, pay attention to things. Uh, I wish I didn't have the sleep disorders that I have, but just accepting that my brain works a certain way and that's okay was very much exciting for me. Today's podcast is brought to you by KiwiCo, which is such a fun family gift for the holidays. I'm huge on giving experiences as gifts and love that you get 50% off with our code. Okay, we've been KiwiCo fans for years, so I can't tell you how excited I am that they're sponsoring our podcast. It's not just my go-to gift for my girls, but my whole family also knows they can never go wrong with KiwiCo for them. My girls love to craft and build and just about any STEM activity, so these boxes are always perfect. And you could give a subscription and celebrate a love for hands-on learning all year long. Plus, there's no commitment, so you can pause or cancel at any time. I love that there are options for building your own ornaments, and you can also, like, do the activity together, then gift it to grandparents, which I'm sure mine aren't the only ones that are impossible to shop for. Uh, what crate projects have you guys all tried so far? I mean, maybe 20 or 25 different ones over the years. <laughs> That's awesome. But they've all been amazing. Our youngest daughter's room is basically like decorated with Kiwico projects. But the most recent one we tried was the Domino Machine Kit that Mark Rober collaborated on with Kiwico. So we all nerded out because we're like huge Mark Rober fans in this house too. Well, that's cute. If you're like me with broody teens who act like you're pulling teeth to get them to participate in anything, honestly, I highly suggest giving this a try. I was surprised how much the kids engaged with our boxes. We got this climber set that uses friction to make it look like a sloth is crawling and also a STEM stereo headset. Say that three times fast. The boys argued over who got to make it. And I've always been impressed by how quality the materials are too. Your child can get super cool, hands-on science, art, and geography projects delivered to their door every month. There's truly something for kids of all ages. KiwiCo has eight lines underneath its umbrella for kids of all ages from zero to 104. For example, the Panda Crate is developed in partnership with Seattle Children's Hospital, delivering age-appropriate hands-on projects. Then for toddlers, they have play-based learning boxes and a super cool Atlas crate for ages 6 to 11 that sparks kids' sense of adventure and curiosity, inspiring them to see themselves as citizens of the world. I'm, I like I want that crate. Um, and then for teens and tweens, Doodle, Tinker, Eureka, and Maker crates are for ages ranging 9 to 104 years old to engage in discovering science, math, and engineering and awesome things they'll use every day. 
or that I'll use every day. <laughs> this holiday season, give the gift of fun, hands-on holiday experiences with KiwiCo. Get 50% off your first month plus free shipping on any crate line with code WHOLEVIEW at KiwiCo.com. That's 50% off your first month at KiwiCo.com. promo code WHOLEVIEW. I have the benefit, Matt, of counting you a friend and knowing you very well. And I just, you know, as we sort of transition into some of the listener questions, I just want to say how like hard it is for me to be here listening to this, you tell your story and like not be bawling my eyes out because what I can hear is like a very different lived experience from mine, but a a similarity in where society told you that you weren't good enough, which for me was centered around weight growing up. Um, and certainly, right, a completely different set of experiences because of that. But I, I love the message that you are bringing about self-acceptance being so transformative and I just you know I'm so glad that society has evolved in recent decades so that you know children now who are being identified as ADHD well certainly some of them will have comparable experiences to you there is way more strategies for teachers and parents and siblings and family members and friends to be able to accommodate the the differences that come from a neurodivergent person compared to the pathologizing root in the 80s of well you you fidget therefore here's the medication to stop you fidgeting because fidgeting is is somehow this terrible thing i i'm glad that fidget spinners exist now hmm. and all the other thousands of fidget toys because it's just become something that has been understood to to just it just is right and i yeah. um i'm and i'm thankful that your kids get to benefit from your journey because they they can grow up now, hopefully with that acceptance the whole time. So, um, so I just want to, I just want to, I mean, I just want to, on behalf of all of our listeners, cause I know there's a lot of listeners thinking the same thing. Thank you for your vulnerability and sharing these stories for us, because I don't, I don't think, I think I, I have a deeper appreciation for, um, what, what the lived experience would be like. And, um, and I think that that's important for all of us because it understanding is like the first, the first step in being able to adjust ourselves as neurotypical people to be able to embrace neurodivergence in the way that it, it should be. So I think that's where I'll, kind of jump in with some of these 
listener questions because I think that compassion and understanding is at the root of being a partner to someone, being in a relationship or having a relationship with someone, being a parent to someone. If you don't have the compassion to understand that that is, there's nothing you're going to do that's going to rewire their brain, right? And so what I meant by medical condition at the beginning is that's my way of telling myself, and I'm going to try to reframe um, with the same understanding, but that's, that's my way of saying, like, you can't ask Matt to change this about himself. Like, this is who he is, and we need to find ways to work with that or to not have you do certain things that you're not going to be successful on. And I think that's really the root of most of the, <laughs> most of the answers that we're going right. to get, right, is that, you know, we have the benefit of being real yin and yang partners. And, I mean, we were super young when we got together And whether that was luck or insightfulness or, you know, whatever it was, there aren't very many people who... Stubbornness. Yeah, stubbornness to (laughs) fail is certainly a thing. Um, There aren't very many partners who get together at the age that we did and have had the longevity and growth um, as individuals as we have. And so for that, you know, there's not one thing that I can attribute it to and I can't tell someone how to do that because it's just, you know, the the magic of our partnership is that I am super organized. I am super attention detailed. I am a list maker to no end so that I never forget a single thing. Mm -hmm. And what's great about that is that I can pick up those pieces for Matt in most cases, in, in most ways. You know, I can say... I've got the grocery list. I need you to go execute. And he can be a helper and he is excellent at sticking to the list. And the grocery bills are a lot less if he goes to the store because (laughs) he has a list and he sticks to it. Um, But I can't just say to him, it's not setting, I mean, I can say to him, but it's not setting us up for success in a partnership. If I were to say to him, you figure out what you need from the store. Yeah. Because... He would forget the absolute essentials that we you, needed. You would ask me to go to the store for these two things, and I come back with seven other things and not those two things. And not those things. two things. And so instead of, you know, being angry at your partner, which I'm sure there was a period of time where I just was angry at you about it was. before, you know, before I accepted, okay, I'm going to have to be the one that makes the list. Um, that's That's part of my partnership, right? And so part of my growth is... You know, does that feel like something I can take on? Does that feel like something I can do? And if it is, in turn, what is Matt going to do? Because part of what the problem was and why I felt so frustrated for so long is because it just kept piling up on my plate for these other things. But then I wasn't taking anything that Matt could have taken off my plate off. Right. And it's figuring out what each of us is good at and really relying on those strengths, just like any partnership. So I think that, you know, one of the ways in which we did that, and I know um, one of the kind of biggest questions that I get, and in our case, Stephanie asked about communication, one of the things that we did when I was pregnant with Cole, actually, because we were butting heads a lot, because Matt also has seasonal... um, depression. So we talked about his depression, but seasonal affective disorder was a lot worse years and years ago before, you know, you had proper medication and it was, it would get really dark in the winter. And I remember, you know, 
we were going through a winter and I was newly pregnant with Cole and it was a really dark time. And I just was like, is this, is this what we're doing or is this not what we're doing? You know, like, because I can't continue the way it is. And so we went and got marriage counseling and I mean, we weren't even married at the time. Um, yeah. We, we chose not to get married until everyone had the right to get married. So we had intended to be together, um, you know, in a lifelong partnership and we were intentionally, you know, having a child, but we weren't married, but we went to marriage counseling and we learned that we were talking past each other, that, you know, what we were saying was really, we, we could get there if we yeah. learned how to have compassion and talk to each other. And, you know, you started to understand what my frustrations were and where I was coming from. I understood how I needed to say things to you to not be triggering or to get you to understand what it was I was asking. And really like learning to communicate with one another just has been a big thing in our relationship. And honestly, it's probably the number one thing that we talk about most often. And when I get frustrated, I don't focus on the thing, right? Because now I can make it about, you know, the 15 return packages that are in the trunk of his car that he hasn't actually returned. Or I can say, why aren't you telling me that you're having a hard time with this? Why? Mm-hmm. What do you need? Why aren't we talking? And that's, yeah. I think, really where we've tried to focus as a couple is on not the nitty gritty, <laughs> because I can make a joke till the cows come home about 80%ing. That's, uh, that's the term that I use that Matt is able to laugh about, right? Yeah. It's not a... It's not coming from a place of shame. It's my way of saying, you didn't finish this task before you moved on to a new one. And again, with the best of intentions, right? Matt has a list of things that I give him like, hey, can you do these things today? He's unloading the dishwasher. He passes by the bag of bird food on the counter as he's putting away dishwashers. He's like, oh, I got to go fill the bird feeder. And then the dishwasher is literally left open half unloaded, (laughs) not because he didn't want to finish the job, but because his mind jumped to... Oh, I need to be. I, I saw need to be another the thing that needed to be done. <laughs> and so, instead of like coming from a place of you didn't finish this, and then it becomes about shame and frustration, I say to him, I walk into the kitchen and I've learned to laugh when I see the dishwasher open, and then I find wherever he is and I say, Matt, you eighty percent of the kitchen, and he knows what that means now, and mm-hmm. we kind of laugh, and then he walks back into the kitchen. He sees the dishwasher open, he laughs, and then he finishes mm-hmm. unloading the dishwasher. If I, as a partner, can't take that burden on, if it's too much for me to feel responsibility, then we wouldn't be a, a good partnership. And I think that's also important when you are in a relationship is to understand what are your needs? What are your boundaries? And where do you need to draw the line? Because there, there are some places where I've drawn the line, for example, in parenting, and I, you know, have said to him, like, I will not parent by myself. I understand that if you're distracted, doing something else, that it's hard for you. But this is something that you need to prioritize when it comes to focus and paying attention. If you see that there are, you know, people around, and you're hearing things, turn on your listening ears, focus and pay attention. Because if parenting needs to happen, it's not fair that you're in the room, but not paying attention. And I'm having to do it all. And I don't want to be the bad guy all the time. So that's one of the places that we've drawn the line. And we've worked together on how can we do a better job of that. And sometimes it's me having to say, Matt, so that he turns on those listening ears and can't pay attention to those things I need. But I've chosen to do that 
on things that really matter and not things like 80%ing the dishwasher. Like that's not, yeah. that's not a deal breaker for me, but that might be for someone else. And I think that's important. Today's podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox, which we both use and have loved for years. And I love that we're able to offer such a great deal for you listeners, free turkey in your first box. If you haven't heard of ButcherBox before, they're a certified B Corp that delivers humane and sustainably raised meat that ships for free, frozen for freshness, and packed in an eco-friendly, 100% recyclable box right to your door. ButcherBox has been essential for our family these last few years. Almost all of our meat and seafood comes from ButcherBox, and we're able to adjust the delivery frequency both up and down as needed, always with free shipping. It's all super simple and on their website with a variety of boxes to choose from, including a custom box, which is what we do. And then you can add on like a turkey for Thanksgiving or roast for the holidays. We've had their turkey for, I think, the last four years, and they are so good. Plus, I love that they source meat and seafood from partners with the highest standards for quality. That means higher levels of important nutrients. For example, the conjugated linoleic acid content of grass-fed beef is up to 500% higher than grain-fed, and it has more omega-3 fats, vitamin A, vitamin E, B vitamins, calcium, magnesium, potassium. You get my point. Yes. And one of the things I love about ButcherBox is that they're focused on quality, both for you the animal, and the planet. You can be assured that the beef is 100% grass-fed, free-range organic chicken, humanely raised pork, and wild-caught seafood. And it tastes good. Skip the lines for your Thanksgiving turkey. This holiday, ButcherBox is proud to give new members a free turkey. Just go to butcherbox.com slash wholeview to sign up. That's butcherbox.com slash wholeview to receive a free turkey in your first box. I love that you are using communication to get beyond what could very easily be very like triggering of the feelings of shame that Matt has experienced in the past. Uh, we have another listener question that I think ties into this sort of division of responsibilities of a, of a, of a partnership very well. So let me just read this question from Vanessa. Um, Vanessa asked, how do you overcome the forgetfulness? I'm dying to let go of some things that I took on, household chores, kid stuff, etc. but he cannot seem to juggle much else besides work and hubby slash dad life. I need him to help, which means remembering to do the dishes without me having to ask him. It's one more mental thing on my plate, like having another kid. Our non-binary child also has it and we see the same struggles. It's so tough. Thank you for doing this. Wow. Does that feel like our life? Yeah. <laughs> so there's a term that is given to ADHD people all the time. It's like, why don't you just apply yourself? And that's something that as someone with ADHD has heard many times throughout their life. Why don't you just apply yourself? You're so s smart. Why can't you just apply yourself, figure this out? But the organizing of time, the remembering of tasks, the, you know, just making the right time for the right task is so hard. Because when dinner is over, I want to go do something else. And I leave. 
and I go do something else. And then I forget all about it until sometime at midnight. I'm like, oh, right. I never got around to doing the dishes. Routine is very key for these kind of tasks. Um, if the task, the, the, the routine is we eat dinner immediately, you move on to doing the dishes. And that's just how we run our lives. It'll become a lot easier to remember to do. If dishes are done at some point during the night, but there's not like a specific routine, that's setting yourself up for forgetting. It always will. Routines will be very, very important. Another thing that is helpful is setting alarms. Um, Alexa tells us to take out the trash. And we have learned that when Alexa tells us to take out the trash, we do it immediately. Um, or my phone. My phone tells me to give medication to the children. If I snooze it, if I say, oh yeah, I remember that, and then I dismiss the alarm, I'm going to forget it. So when the alarm tells me to do it, I have to do it right away. Um, that's, that's one thing that is definitely big is that I found that we've worked on a lot is doing the thing right away. Because yeah. if you defer, even if you have the best of intentions of like, oh, but I'm doing this one thing right here. And so I'll do that in 10 minutes. Like you can have the best of intentions, but I don't even think about it in terms of forgetfulness. I think about it in terms of like redirection, like their mind has literally gone someplace else. It's not even yeah. that they've forgotten. It's that it doesn't exist in their brain anymore. Yeah. So it's, you can't think of it like they're forgetting or they're not doing it on purpose. It's creating whatever it is. So we used to have a list on the board of like, these are the things that Matt needs to do every day so that when he woke up in the morning, he would remember to start the coffee pot. No, he doesn't do that anymore because I don't drink coffee. But like, it was a thing that really told me he cares about me. He gets up before me. The coffee will be hot when I'm ready. Like, that's a way of showing me that you care because we were in quarantine and he was working, you know, all day, every day, every day, and we never got to see each other. And if I would wake up to a pot of coffee, it felt like Matt cares. But if he didn't, then it felt like he doesn't care. And so we had to come up with ways to do that. And sitting together in the kitchen while the kids do the dishes, and then Matt's responsible for the parenting part of that. Because I do a lot of the parenting during the day. And so I'm like, I don't want to be nagging these kids about the dishes. So that's his responsibility. And so, none so I'm of, the one who nags. <laughs> yeah. But none of that's possible if we're not communicating and we don't decide whose responsibility is what. And I think if you have an expectation that someone do something and you're not communicating on how to be successful and set up to do that, if you're not like, okay, it's really important that you do the dishes. I was with the kids during the day, I made dinner and I need 90 minutes to myself. And so I need you to do the dishes and to be with the kids until bath time. And then we'll, you know, co-parent or whatever it is that you need. I just think it's so important to talk about what it is you need and to validate each other. Like, I hear you. I know you need that. I want to give that to you. The struggle that I have is, mm -hmm. okay, how can we work around that? And, you know, you, I don't know how else to explain to, like, have those very open, detailed conversations. And it's easier to do when you're not heated. It's easier to do yeah. when it's not, 
you know, someone just forgot to do the dishes. You know, Matt and I are often giving each other time to process and then coming back and saying, okay, here's why I got triggered or here's what was frustrating about that. Let's talk about this. And always trying to remember that someone who is your your partner in marriage and that you had kids with has the best of intentions and doesn't mean to be in I hope most cases pissing you off on purpose, right? Like that's not the intent. So how can we work around that? Yeah. And another thing is for both of you to be honest about what you can take on. Mm -hmm. Um, I can promise to make lists and, you know, make a schedule and follow the schedule. But if I'm honest with myself, that's going to fall apart in three days. Um, and it does every and then, time. And then I'm even more frustrated she, that there was a promise that was made and it wasn't committed to and blah, blah, blah. Right. So I, I have made lots of promises that I had the best of intentions to keep and could not do yeah. because I can't function the ways that I'm trying to promise that I can. So you have to be very, very carefully honest about what you actually are capable of. I think that is a great lead into the next question, Sarah. So the next question is from, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Andrada, who asks, uh, suggestions for a diagnosis as an adult, favorite resources to help spouse and myself. Your comment about white lies due to anxiety really hit home to me in addition to other issues that have gotten worse as I age. A support group is very important. Yeah. Um, even so, if it's an online support group, would be very, very important. What's your specific support group? So I go to a kind of a an anxiety support group every Wednesday. Um, it's a small group. What does it teach? And it teaches me about how to overcome the social anxiety in particular um, through working on skills. It's a it's a um, uh, CBT group. So it's about training your brain and it's a very activity focused and that is very helpful for me to like have tasks that I do that help me retrain and organize my brain. That's was very helpful for me. You also see a therapist. I see a therapist. I specifically see a therapist who also has ADHD. Um, and they're very understanding about the struggles that I have. Um, if you get to a therapist and they start talking about you just got to make a list you guys got to do this you just got to do that um that's the wrong therapist for ADHD <laughs> and um I'll lead into the the last part of this which is about the white lies you had a therapist for three years during the darkest part of your depression after Andrew passed who was I don't know what they were doing but had no idea that you were lying to them like the whole time and they'd ask how things were and it was like it was like your own little version of how life was in your therapy room, but there was no actual like real therapy happening during that time because you were afraid to say how you really felt or yeah. how things were really going. And you need a therapist that will understand and call you out on that. And the best thing about the therapist you're seeing right now is that, you know, I've, I've been in sessions with them where they'll say, that's not okay. Or, you know what I mean? They'll, they'll yeah. call out or hold you accountable and or point out, do you realize this or whatever, right? Like right. having a therapist that's just a place that you can just like vent, but isn't helping you become a better person, isn't going to help you become a better person. Yeah. So I think um, the CBT group, finding the right therapist, obviously, 
you're medicated in terms of diagnosis as an adult. I mean, we've never gone through diagnosis as an adult because you were diagnosed as a kid, but I would talk to your medical professional. I mean, your, your regular annual physician, if they can't diagnose you, they can give you a referral. Yeah. That's really a very, um, you've got a diagnosis. Now you need to work on how to make it work for your life. Yeah. Find the things that find the pain points and see how you can alleviate them. And I I will say, I'm going to just be like real honest. The white lies are what Matt, if it, if, and when there are rocky times in our marriage, it comes from white lies because for me, trust is very big. And the one thing that I ask of him is to not lie to me and he can make that commitment as much as he can But sometimes it happens and it happens over the stupidest things. And I don't, you know, I don't say that to belittle him. He would, you you would agree. That's the stupidest thing. Stupidest things. And it's stuff that I will know, you know, it's like, it's going to come out that you didn't mail the whatever. It's going to come out that like, you know, whatever happened. And we have just gotten to a point where. It is happening less because you're doing all of these other things and focusing on it. But also, I have to have compassion sometimes and remind myself, okay, just because he lied about this thing doesn't mean that he's lied about everything else in life, which is where my brain goes, right? Like my brain immediately goes to, well, if you're going to lie to me about whether or not you, I don't even remember. Yeah. Uh, Lots of things. (laughs) Did you, did you... Did you request your, my mail-in ballot? Is that what it was? Well, you got your own, but not mine. Well, it, it, because well, it, it's anyway. Yeah, today's today is election day. You're listening to this uh, in a time warp, but I had requested Matt figure out how to get me an election ballot because he's good at research and information. And so this is one of the things, right? Is that like we leverage each other to set each other up for success. So there are things that I'll ask him to do for me because he likes researching and figuring it out and he's passionate about the mail. And so, (laughs) um, which is interesting. I think we should talk about why that works well for you. But, um, so what happened is you went to the website, you got distracted in what you were doing, and you requested your own absentee ballot. I, I did, of, but I need to go find your license because I need your yep. customer number. And so and you got, forgot and then, about then it. Then you were like, oh, I'll just get my own. And then you forgot. And then yours came in the mail. And I was like, where's mine? And yeah. and of course, like, he didn't say to me, well, I am just realizing now that I forgot yours. I'm going to order it. And then I'm in a panic, like, well, did it already get requested absentee ballot? And then am I not going to be able to vote because it's not going to be here and I have to do absentee? Can I go to the polls? And I'm like asking all these questions. And meanwhile, he's like on the internet ordering mine. right? (laughs) (laughs) And it's not because he doesn't care or didn't want me to vote, right? Like clearly he wanted me to vote. He just forgot. His brain jumped to another thing when he didn't have all the information that he needed to do the task that was in front of him. And he said to himself, oh, I'll do that in a minute or, you know, I need to get whatever. And then there was a distraction. And so I think it's, that's what I mean by intent is like, for me, I have to remind myself about the the white lies, which can lead to, you know, me feeling like, what is this partnership if I can't trust the person I'm with? And I have to say, no, I can trust them. I just need to not set them up for failure. I need to ask them only things that, you know, are they're capable of doing and they need to focus on ways in which they can do it. And sometimes there's, you know, a speed bump in that road, but it doesn't mean that you can't trust your partner. 
So I just want to say, here's what might work with a partner if you are doing these kind of lies to them. The lies come up for me when I feel confronted and feel like the immediate anxiety of being confronted with something I have done wrong. And it brings up the feelings of shame and the feelings of uh, inadequacy and all of that in that exact moment. And because of the impulse control, I'm just going to say yes to make it go away. The key is giving somebody space to correct themselves because once you've lied if the discovery of, of that you're lying is going to be a big deal for your partner uh it's going to feel even worse to like try to go back on that so you're going to get redoubled down and try to like reinforce the, the lie thing, then it's the thing that you lied about and the fact that you lied yeah, yeah. so if you are a partner of somebody who does this you pause, you say, hey, is that really true? And give sometimes them, they'll double down. <laughs> well, give them the opportunity to reverse it and to tell the truth and allow that, that that's, it's okay for you to have lied at first if you tell me the truth right after. If you give them that space, you'll get the truth more often. Yep. But, but that's just, hard. Just don't expect to... I mean, I think it's it's like 80%ing the dishwasher. You just... You need to understand that that is part of the how the brain is working and it's not personal. And I think the more that you can kind of like let go of that, um, the easier it'll be. I'm like currently like filing this information away. I think <laughs> there's a piece of this that is also super relevant to just teenagers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I'm like, yeah, I feel like I've had this exact same conversation with uh, my children. Um, obviously, it comes from a different source, but I, I think there's an aspect to the compassion and the understanding that's needed that is very like broadly applicable. Our last question is from Megan, who asks... I'm the ADHD partner and I definitely feel like I'm struggling with my partner, even believing that it's real. I was recently diagnosed and medicated. So progression is better than perfection, but damn man, how do I get them to understand? (laughs) It's hard because they don't, they don't think that way. They can't put themselves in your brain and they never will. Um, Because for many people, what it looks like is here is a capable, intelligent adult who isn't able to do the things that are super simple for me. Um, remembering to do tasks, to finish tasks, to be even in the moment at any given time. Like I, I, That seems really easy for your partner. It seems like you are not doing it right. Why can't you just do it right? And that's incredibly difficult for somebody to empathize with if they have no experience with it. Um, I think the first thing is to get them to look into it. Read about it. Watch videos about it. Listen to this podcast. Listen to this podcast. (laughs) Uh, Any amount of 
you know, confirmation that this is a known thing, that people's brains work this way, that your partner isn't just screwing up. Isn't it like 10% of the population? Do we know that statistic? It's, it's um, I actually have it right in front of me. So it's about 10% of children and about 5% of adults. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder too, if the partner, um, because Megan is a female and as you mentioned, Sarah, the symptoms and diagnosis in genders is often different. So I wonder if this partner has a perception of what ADHD looks like and is looking at his partner and saying, well, I'm assuming that it's a male. Maybe it's not a male. Um, maybe the partner is looking at Megan and saying this. Um, I should be looking at a Wesley. Right. I don't I don't believe yeah. you. Well, here's the thing, Bob. I don't know. <laughs> Megan's <laughs> partner. Um, that's not for him to decide. Harry, Stacey. Harry. Partner, Harry. Oh, look at that. <laughs> um, I know Harry understands. <laughs> um, Harry is a mental health advocate. So I think that the the thing is to get this partner to understand it's not their decision to diagnose their partner, right? Like the partner's been diagnosed for a reason. And I'm sure that this partner has noticed that Megan has difficulties in certain areas. And the thing to do isn't to say, I don't believe you. The thing to do is to say, oh, well, that's interesting. And so I think it's a question for Megan, like, how can you get your partner to see that? Can you compassionately sit down and have a conversation? Like, have you noticed this, this and this? That's part of my diagnosis, this this was diagnosed because I check these six bullets off of the list that Sarah provided. Or, you know, I want to I want to live my best life and I need you to understand what my needs are in order for us to do that. And I think if a partner is completely unwilling, and it doesn't sound like Megan's at that point, right? But like, if a partner is like, I don't believe you, I'm not going to work with you on this, like you know, no understanding and compassion, then the question is, can you really work that yin-yang relationship like Matt and I have worked? Because as much as we have had this best of intent with one another, as much as part of why I fell in love with him was this difference that he has, it still has been extremely difficult at times. I think it's just really important to be able to know whether or not that's something that your partner is open to learning and um, processing with you. And that might look different. But for us, that looked like going to marriage counseling and that person explaining a lot of the things that we've learned here today about white lies being a part of ADHD. And I denied that for a long time, you know, even though... Almost 20 years. (laughs) No, (laughs) But even though someone was telling me that that was part of, you know, the characteristics of this, it was still difficult for me to accept that for a very long time. But at least I knew and understood, right? So there's a difference between, like, okay, I acknowledge that that's real and that's a thing. It's different to like have a lived experience where someone tells you, yeah, I did that thing and they didn't do that thing. And then all of the emotions of, you know, for both of us, right? Like, but at the very least, your partner needs to be able to say, oh, this is a fact. This is not 
this this is not something we can have an opinion on. <laughs> this is a, this is an actual part. This of, is how it works. Yeah, and I think if your partner can't get there, then they may not be a partner for you. And you know, I think that's a conversation that only a partnership can understand. But it wouldn't be fair to either one of you to not be accepted or validated by your partner. And so I think it's just important to really consistently keep those lines of communication open. And for Matt and I, that looked like, you know, I'm having a really hard time having the patience for what is happening right now. And I love you and I want to be married to you, but I don't want to deal with this anymore. And then having a conversation about, okay, well, what can we do about that? Can we address that? Or is this something that is a part of you that cannot be changed? And then what does that mean for us? And, you know, in our case, you know, with therapy, with marriage counseling, with compassion to learn about each other's needs, it meant that we could move forward. But it might look different for somebody else. And, you know, I don't know, in 10 years, if that looks different for us, this is where we are now. And we just take it, you know, one day at a time and have frank and open conversations. Like when I was growing from doing all the training that I was taking Mm -hmm. and all of that kind of stuff to be able to tell Matt, like, I feel like I'm moving forward in my growth as a person and I don't feel like you're coming along with me. Like, I love you and I want to be married to you and I need you to take this journey with me because I can't consistently tell you my feelings and have you not validate them. Like, I've now learned how important that is. I need you to do that for me. And Matt is willing to say, okay, I'm going to listen to these podcasts and I'm going to watch these YouTube videos and I'm going to bring myself along because that's important. And if you can't do those things together then that makes partnership difficult. So you can't make someone understand. They have to be willing and wanting to learn because they care about you and that's part yeah. of who you are. And I, you know, I fell in love with Stacy, and I continue to be very curious about my partner who I love and how they work. And a partner who loves you and cares about you sh- would would want to be curious about how you work and figure out how how this person who I am fascinated by, who I want to be with, how is it that their brain is working? That's that's the partner that you want. Uh, and I think that if your partner is denying your ADHD, saying, "This is the way my brain works," um, aren't you curious? about how this person that you love works. Why don't we discover this together? The one other tool that I'll mention that hasn't been mentioned for partnership in general that Matt and I have been using um, beyond like therapy, right? This is not a replacement for therapy, but I think this is a good place to start conversations for that communication to work is an app called paired. Mm. Um, and we're not as consistent with it as we were when we first started. But, um, you know, when we're in a good place in our relationship, it happens more naturally and we don't really need the app. Yeah. But the app has um, been helpful because it asks questions and has you do quizzes about your relationship. And it's not like a, it doesn't like grade you to say you are a good couple or not a good couple. What it does is 
show you where you are aligned or where you're not aligned on certain things, or it has um, initiation conversation. So one of the things that it asked us for funsies was if we won the lottery today with no other obligations or responsibilities, what would we do? And we both answered, we would sell our house and um, move and travel. And so that's something that we were able to kind of, you know, look at each other and be like, we're on, the same page for what we want for our future. We want to get rid of our kids, <laughs> sell our house, and move and travel. Um, but there's other things that the app has asked us, um, you know, like, how could your partner help you this week? What's something that your partner could do to help you this week? Where it's a way to say what your needs are to your partner without having to say, I need this from you in a way that is easier when you need a little push if you're in a difficult spot to like have those those kinds of conversations and the key is to have conversations after right the key is to like have it be a conversation starter but especially when you know Matt's working we don't see each other a lot you know I've talked about how full our days are with being foster parents and you know the additional training and support groups and therapeutic services we're all doing and so it's a way to make time to make sure that when we come together especially at the end of the day like when we're getting ready for bed or something that we're able to kind of like talk about that thing if we're sitting there silently not talking to each other then that's a thing that we can lean on and I think that's you know I don't know if that, if that would work for new couples or if this is just, you know, us getting old. Yeah, and get, Getting um, old, forgetting about each other. But honestly, I think it would be a great communication tool. So, and that's, you know, I think that there we started with like a 30-day free trial. Yeah. You can give it or something like that. But um, I, I researched and Matt also researched some different kinds of like things that we could do. And that was something that we both felt like was working for us. Yeah. It, it, honestly, the key to increasing intimacy is deep conversation and and getting outside of the day-to-day yeah i have one final question that i hope will kind of wrap up this whole conversation or it might just be like way too rhetorical and in which case we'll edit it out and it'll be like i never asked um (laughs) but that is from your experiences sort of together in this relationship what are sort of broad changes that could happen in terms of how society is structured to better work for somebody with a, I mean, well, let's be more specific with ADHD. Like, would it help if grocery stores were structured differently? Like, are there, are there big things that you can kind of say if this was more flexible or organized in a different way that would be something that makes my life so much easier because it would be more compatible with the way my brain works. All right. So I'm going to go as, as broad as you possibly can. Okay. I think the problem that a lot of ADHD people experience is that so much of what we do is focused around sitting down, paying attention, and moving through different levels of more intense levels of sitting down and paying attention, right? Like, if you think about it from kindergarten, where everybody's 
sitting on the floor and then they get up and then they go and do this sort of thing, right? The older that you get, the more you have to sit down, pay attention, and do things that are difficult for people with ADHD. Study. Um, no one with ADHD knows how to study. They don't. They know how to read something. They know how to remember things, but they don't know how to effectively have a process of studying. So what I and all my brothers and a lot of people I know with ADHD have experienced is that life in school was so easy for the first, say, 10 years. And then the more advanced things got, the more it became exactly what we're bad at. To the point where by the time I got to college, um, I was just begging for a class where I could sit and listen to a lecture and then take a test and be done with it. That's what I was good at. Uh, what I wasn't good at was systematized studying, research um, that's directed towards a topic. These sort of things I'm very bad at. And then by, by the time I got to an office where all they expect you to do is sit in an office and stare at a computer screen, I was awful at that. It was terrible. And because we've set up, you know, our levels of success in exactly the wrong way for me, um, I ended up in, uh, in my sophomore year just not being able to do anything in, in college and going to an office job um, that I was pretty, pretty terrible at. Um, and no one along the way tried to set me aside and say, let's see what your strengths are and what a good trajectory for you is. Um, and instead she kept trying to mash me in the, the neurotypical box that I couldn't fit in. Yeah. I mean, and if they did, I'm imagining that a guidance counselor would have said, you're so smart, you should yeah. you should do this desk job or yeah, whatever, yeah. right? And I think about how, for example, Cole is a junior in high school, and his plan looks very different yeah. from how your plan looked. And we've encouraged him to follow vocational schools. We've encouraged him to... Um, if what he wants to do is go to community school, get an associate's degree, and then get certifications in what he's passionate in, um, then do that. Because I think it took you until you were 39 years old to yeah. find a job that you enjoyed mm -hmm. that utilized your strengths. And that, to be clear, you can be organized when you're excited about something, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you are passionate about one of these fandom type things yeah. right like wesley's pop vinyls are very organized on his shelf right <laughs> yeah. he loves he loves them and he displays them and um you know cole's computer files are very organized yeah. because you know he saved up his money he built his computer and he cares about it and he takes care of it and you're very organized and linear and you have a good process for the male, right? Yeah. Like there is a systematized way that you're able to follow that's very functional and physical, yeah. right? It's not like sitting and thinking, it's doing a thing yeah. and that works for you. Yeah. People with ADHD love a system that's already built for them. Um, and so when I got to the post office, um, after being 
fascinated by the male all my life, which sounds lame to so many people, but... <laughs> it's okay, you're in the nerd show. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, I mean... That's just, like, in, endearing. Are you kidding me? Yeah. I, I love that you nerded out about male. I wouldn't have thought to nerd out about male, so I think it's extra cool that you're nerding oh out about gosh. male. Oh my gosh, you have no idea. Every day he'd come home from yeah. put the, the school, where they send you to... I didn't even know you went to postmaster school and he graduated first in his class because he's just, like, so excited about the mail. <laughs> so, I, I mean, oh gosh, you know, fantastic. you put something in the mail and it arrives on the other side of the country in two days. That's that's cool. There's a lot of systems that go into getting it there and how it doesn't get lost and all that. But I came into a place where there was a system that things were organized for me already that wasn't going to be the same every day that had, you know, a lot of different components that um, I could focus on. I mean, it's awesome. I never knew that this is what I was best set up for. And one of the things that is a problem, I think, for ADHD people is that a lot of them are, are very intelligent and they've spent their entire lives being told, you're so smart, you should be able to do this. Um, and having people put all these expectations on them because of raw intelligence. And um, very few ADHD people, I feel, are this kind of driven um, entrepreneur types, these kind of people with big ambitions. Um, because I think at the end of the day, all I want to do is have something in my life that satisfies me, makes me happy. Um, I don't need to be important. I don't need to do any of these things. And repeatedly pushing people to have ambition, to have big, you know, goals in life, if they don't have them, leads to a lot of frustration. Just just marry them. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just marry the most competitive person you've ever yeah. met in your life. <laughs> Um, so if I were to distill it down as broadly as I could, I would say that society needs to let go of its expectations that everyone be the same. And I think that's as broad as it can be because it applies also beyond ADHD, right? Like there's brilliance in so many autistic people. Like there's, there is, I don't know, countless instances of people that we can point to that have done incredible things. Um, who are neurodiverse, whether that's ADHD or, you know, whatever it may be. I mean, some of our most famous um, inventors and uh, billionaires and these kinds of things are people who have some of the characteristics that we described earlier on in the show, including um, bipolar or different kinds of things, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you, you can't expect everyone to be the same. And when you do, you exacerbate the problems. You've heard about how, you know, when we expect these children to behave the same as someone else, that we're telling them who they are inherently is wrong and how that snowballs into more negative things. And so I think if I were to distill it into like what society could do or what we could do as individuals to support a changed culture, it would be to stop expecting everyone to be the same. Someone who doesn't have the ability to sit crisscross applesauce in circle time the whole time isn't a bad 
kid, right? Like they're just not able to do that task. And that's okay, because they could be a successful mailman when they grow up, they could be a successful, you know, many, many, many things that don't involve sitting still for long periods of time. And if we changed our expectation, then we would help individuals be the best version of themselves to achieve what it is that they want. And I think as a parent, and as a wife, that's what I want for the people who I love, right? I want them to feel good and supported and like they're doing something that they enjoy. And I think we need to remember when we're asking to put people into boxes, because that's what society expects, we're not supporting and loving and encouraging that person as who they are. And I think the more that we can remember that, the the better the world will be. I agree. So I want to, on behalf of all of our listeners, Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show this week and sharing your experience, especially so candidly and vulnerably. I think, um, I think certainly I feel like I've learned a ton uh, during this last hour and a bit, and I, I'm sure many of our listeners will feel the same. So thank you so much for just being willing to share like this. It's, um, it, it, it's meaningful to me and I, and I imagine that it's very meaningful to our listeners as well. Well, thanks for opening up your platform for me. Um, this is something that I've, I've wanted to share that I don't think a lot of people, uh, people are still, um, involved in the struggle instead of the embracing and i just really want to get that message to everybody that embrace who you are and it's okay to be you and also it's okay to get medical interventions like you can embrace who you are like let's just be very clear oh yeah and and still that best version of yourself isn't depressed or anxious you know exactly it's okay to um work with medical professionals and therapists and and marriage counselors or whatever it is like there's no shame in any of that and I hope that everyone um can embrace those wonderful things that are there to support you being in your best self so thanks for listening and we'll be back next week we love providing the whole view podcast for you as a free resource you can support the show by using the links and codes we share in our podcast And we love to read your reviews and chats wherever you listen. And don't forget to share our podcast with your friends and family. Speaking of chat, did you know that you can get exclusive behind the scenes content on Patreon? When you support us with your Patreon membership, you get access to live Q&As and weekly bonus audio. But they're not for kids ears because our bonus content is explicit. You can also stay in touch with us via our social media channels. I'm at Real Everything Blog. And I'm at The Paleo Mom. And we've got more great resources on our websites and in our newsletters. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.